Welcome to the Horsewise Podcast with Lynn Reardon, where we share stories of horses and people and what they teach each other. On today's episode, I talk with Dr. Janet Jones, author of Horse Brain, Human Brain, a fascinating study of horsemanship and equine brain science. I hope you enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. Hi everyone, I'm Lynn Reardon, the host of the podcast and head coach at Horsewise. Today I'm honored to have Dr. Janet Jones, author of Horse Brain, Human Brain, as the guest on the podcast. Dr. Jones's book has become one of my favorite go-to reference books because of its link between horsemanship and the brain functions of horses as well as people. Dr. Jones is an incredible person in and of herself. She is literally a brain scientist, as well as also being a lifelong horsewoman and horse trainer. I hope you enjoy the interview and learn as much from it as I did. Hi, Dr. Jones. Welcome to the Horsewise podcast. We're so excited to have you here today. Hi, thank you, Lynn. I'm really happy to be here, and I'm excited to talk about the book a little bit and talk about our horses and see what we can come up with. Well, the first thing I really like to talk about, because it's my podcast and I get to talk about what I like to talk about at the beginning, is when I read your book, Horse Brain, Human Brain, I was really just struck by how all of the things, many of the things I had been taught as being good horsemanship were, in a sense, scientifically backed up in your book, not through any kind of convoluted twist of reasoning, but through neuroscience, the neuroscience of the horse's brain. And I thought that was so amazing because I had never, ever thought of it that way. I just thought that these were more or less principles of behavior that humans had to present to the horse in order for the horse to learn. So some of the things that um, are part of the horsemanship practice or approach that I was taught are things like that you should release for the smallest try that the horse gives you. That's very important to acknowledge that, that you should set it up and let the horse find it rather than trying to make the horse do something. In other words, to encourage the horse to learn. One of the biggest sayings in my horsemanship uh, circles is think, just think. Human being, think about what you're uh, wanting the horse to do, what you're asking the horse to do, what your body language is, all of these things that the human first needs to think through, like that that's our responsibility, so to speak, since we are the ones that are essentially the leaders of the dance. And of course, make the right thing easy and the wrong thing hard, but don't try to make the wrong thing impossible. Just make it a little bit more difficult. And then finally, put the horse first, which really I feel like as I was reading your book, um, and just again, I, I took so many notes because the science was unknown to me. I'm not a scientist at all. I was an English literature major and then got into horses. So this was like a whole new world for me. And I was just really struck and impressed by that. And as well as how you, your writing is so down to earth and humorous and clear, but it's also very scientifically accurate. So that's an unusual blend, which leads me to my first question, which is from what I understand, Dr. Jones, you are both a brain scientist and a horsewoman and trainer. So please tell us about that unique and what I think is totally amazing combination. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you calling it an amazing combination because most, during most of my life, people just thought it was a really weird combination. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I grew up around horses 
And um, I was writing and showing at a very early age. And, um, and I began training at an early age through kind of a fluke with uh, the way that high school was set up uh, during the time that, that I was there. And so, um, so I really had a wonderful basis in my early life for um, developing the skills and the knowledge that I needed to work with horses. And um, I lived and worked at a um, training stable that had anywhere between 60 and 80 horses wow. at one time. So it was a really huge operation and it allowed me to have the experience of working daily with um, eight or 10 different horses. Some of those horses stayed with us for a long period of time, but there was a good number, I would say at least a third of our horses um, moved in and out on kind of a monthly basis. So there was always a new couple of horses to get on and there were always new problems to address. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I think that that really helped me. And, um, and then I went to college late, I became interested in, um, in the brain in the human brain. And for a very long time, it, it's kind of funny. I really just sort of went on these two separate tracks in my life without thinking very much about how they might be combined or integrated in some way. And it wasn't until I had been a professor of brain science for many years, 25 years, that I actually began really thinking carefully about that and realizing that, you know, there's a real need for this. And mm -hmm. I felt that, that at, at this time in our society, there is a willingness and an interest in learning about human brains. And so it just from that seemed to me that I think horse people would be very interested in learning about their horses brains also. And I discovered very quickly that um, you can't just study the horse brain in isolation mm. because we use horses in teams and I consider every horse and rider or driver or ground handler or whatever to be a team, they're partners, they're working together. And um, what that means is that everything that happens in the horse brain is being um, considered through the prism of the human brain. Mm -hmm. And vice versa, everything that goes on in the human brain is being considered through the horse brain. And so you can't just look at the horse brain and say, well, here's how this works. You also have to look at the human brain and say, here's how the horse's brain works. And here's how your brain either helps with that or counteracts it. And uh, we do both. Sometimes we really counteract what's going on and create big problems for horses without ever recognizing that that's what we're doing. And, right. and I'm sure that, you know, no one is intending to make right. this difficult. Right, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yes. And the, the thing with horses is that they are such large feedback machines, right? So they, they really do reflect back what it is that you are putting forward in the partnership or in the, in the request. And if you don't understand 
what language, so to speak, the horse is speaking in that feedback, that's where you can have misunderstandings and, you know, fractures in a relationship that might easily be put on good footing if, if the person understood more. We can't expect the horse to understand more. They're not, they're not going to listen to this podcast. They're not, no. they're not going to read your book. Um, this is no. not going to happen. So we have to, as the human partner in the team, we have to take the responsibility, you know, of learning. Yes. And, and, and it's also fun. I would just say for my listeners who are like, ah, science, I don't brain want to know science. science, brain science, but it's super fun because it, it explains things in such a, it just makes sense. You know, some people become afraid of their horses because they don't understand maybe what is happening, that the signal that the horse gives you is not intended to be disobedient or threatening. It's just maybe based on fear or on a flight response or something else that we maybe misinterpret as personal. And that's what I found so uh, reassuring and fascinating about your book is that it is demystifying some things while also very much giving the horse its full measure as an individual, as well as a member of a species. And I found that really interesting too. It's very respectful to individual horses while also putting into context, you know, the commonalities, like, you know, all people have frontal lobes, horses don't, you know, no matter how smart your horse is, the frontal lobe isn't going to, isn't going to magically appear. So, which kind of leads me into my next kind of section here. Um, if you don't mind giving a very, I mean, simplified overview of the primary differences between horse and human brain, I really want to urge my, my listeners to read this book because Whatever Dr. Jones tells you, first of all, it'll be amazing, but it won't, it can't be in as much detail as the book. And like I said, the book is just a delight to read. And then you end up learning about brain science, which is incredible. But if you don't mind, Dr. Jones, if you can just give us a, a brief overview of what you would say are the key differences between okay. horse and human brains. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think probably at the most general level, we have to recognize that brains of all kinds, of all species, have developed over many eons of evolution. And so the brain that we have presently in any species lags behind our current situation or environment for that brain. And this is definitely true for both humans and horses. Humans have predator brains because we evolved originally as predators. Mm -hmm. And so our brains are in fact quite similar in many ways to the brains of other predators like dogs, cats, lions, um, all of those different uh, kinds of things. Horses are completely different from all that. So the whole, the, even just the notion of horses and humans cooperating together to do all of the things that we do is remarkable. Horses are prey animals. They have prey brains. Their brains are not similar to dogs or cats or lions or humans. And so I think that just at the most general level, we all have to understand that we're dealing with a really unusual form of cooperation here, one that really doesn't exist in any other uh, pair of species that I can think of. And um, these, the, the horse's prey brain, for example, 
has developed over 56 million years wow. of evolution. We can't just ignore that. We can't just override that. And there's no way that a horse's present day environment is going to be able to change 56 million years of development. Right. So that's a really critical difference right there. Um, I think then in addition to that, it's important for people to recognize that the perceptual basis for both of the species is very different. Um, the human brain relies on vision very, very strongly. Even in people who say, oh, I'm not a visual person. Your brain, your cortex is still devoted to vision. The majority of the cells in your cortex are devoted to vision as opposed to other senses that we have. Horses rely on the senses of smell and touch. And they're amazingly good at detecting differences in smell and touch. So if we really want to communicate with a horse, we have to kind of divorce ourselves from this mm. idea that, that everything can be seen or looked at or viewed um, because uh, for a horse, the, that vision is not the most critical uh, uh, sense by far. Um, and I think we often underestimate the degree to which horses move through the world on the basis of their experience of smell and touch. Um, another difference is that humans have a brain process that's called categorical perception. And um, it's a little bit complicated to explain, but basically it groups uh, the instances of a category together mm -hmm. and treat them all alike. Um, and it's automatic for us. We, we're not aware of it. We don't think about it. Almost no one knows we even have this process that's working for, you know, the occasional really odd brain science. Right, right. We shall remain nameless, right. <laughs> yes, but normal people don't know about that, about that kind of stuff. And yet our brains use that process 24 hours a day. That's the way we work. That's the way we live. Horses don't have categorical perception. So every new instance of something in a horse's life is the equivalent of a brand new risk. Mm. And that's one basis for why horses shy so much and why they're frightened of different um, environmental things that that we say, oh, you've already seen that. Why are you, you know, behaving like you've never seen that? If the horse is approaching it from a different angle, mm -hmm. it's a whole new thing right. to his brain. It's not a whole new thing to our brain, but it is to his. And if he so, sees like one tree that's been next to the arena all the time, just as, let's say it's a pine tree, it never changes, it looks the same. And then you go trail riding and you come across an oak tree, that horse will be like, oh, it's something new, even though you're like, it's just a tree. It's a tree like the other tree, but it looks different. Maybe it doesn't have its leaves. Maybe the branches, the shadows are different. So the horse doesn't go, that that tree on the trail is the same as the tree. I put it in the same category as the tree by the arena. It's a harmless thing. He's like, what is that? Is that going to eat me? What is it? Exactly. That's a great example. And it doesn't 
even have to be the difference between a pine tree and an oak tree. It can be the difference between the pine tree next to the arena and the pine tree out on trail. It can also be the difference between the pine tree next to the arena when you're tracking to the right versus the same exact pine tree next to the arena when you're tracking to the left. That's fascinating. Every instance is different. And that is something that um, is a natural part of the horse's brain. um, And we and they just don't have that process that overrides it. A couple more examples of differences. Um, You mentioned earlier, and you're absolutely correct that um, humans have prefrontal cortex that evaluates, decides, judges, worries, does all that kind of stuff. And the prefrontal cortex takes up a lot of our daily attention. So it's kind of why we have that running commentary in the back of our minds all the time about what's happening in the environment and why, you know, what it means Mm -hmm. to us. Um, Horses have no prefrontal cortex. They don't even have frontal lobes, uh, which you also mentioned. And so they can't evaluate or strategize or judge and um, personally I find that very refreshing. (laughs) Me too, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But but often you know when people don't realize that they attribute to the horse the ability to strategize or make decisions or behave badly on purpose. Right. Of which horses they don't do that. They don't do that. And what I'm saying is they don't have the brain capacity to do that. They're literally incapable of doing that. Literally incapable. It's a physical impossibility. Um, And then the the last of the examples I would give is that um, is the difference between the way human attention works in the brain and equine attention works. Um, Human attention gives us an excellent ability to focus our minds on one task for a relatively long time. And even in this era of distraction that we sometimes complain about and multitasking and all that, our brains are still very, very good at focusing. Horse brains are like butterflies. They bounce around all over the place. They notice every tiny little thing. So they have good attention if you define it as the ability to orient and notice all sorts of things. We're not very good at that. We ignore a lot of things that really should be important. And if we were prey animals and in danger of being eaten, they would be important to us. So a horse's attention is externally driven uh, by sensations and events in the environment, Mm -hmm. whereas uh, human attention is internally driven by our thoughts and our goals. And uh, that creates a big difference that is quite meaningful in daily life, too, for horses. And horses aren't, from the way, what I got from your book is that horses we're wired for that to be kind of instantaneous. So perceive a hint of a threat and immediately move. Like there's no like, that could be a tiger. Maybe I should think about moving. What would be the next best step? They're just like, might be tiger gone. Like just leave, you know, or whatever. Yes, and an equine brain is literally hardwired to do that. Mm -hmm. So a human brain 
um, the wiring in the human brain goes from perception to the prefrontal cortex where things can be assessed and mm -hmm. judged and decisions are made and then to movement. Mm -hmm. But a horse doesn't have that prefrontal cortex. So the wiring goes directly from perceive something to run away. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, and that has kept them alive so that they can be our wonderful companions now. And it's, it's a real tribute to their adaptability and trainability that they will do so many things for us that require them to set aside a little bit certain kinds of, of perceptions, you know, um, there's certain things they just don't, without us training them and, and perhaps breeding them to be maybe a slightly less reactive to things, horses would not be able to function at, at the task we want them to do. So I think it's a real testament to the, the inherent nature of the horse as a, a kind of learning machine. You know, they really will absorb and um of course and of course they're wonderful creatures right they have they have their yeah. individual characters and personalities we love them so much but just going back to that like you said this very unique partnership between prey and predator is really not there's no other example of it and it's one that's gone on for centuries and centuries and you know i just go back to we have all of the extra gear you know we have the frontal lobe we have the adaptability mm -hmm. and the fact that horses are so willing they're such willing creatures is just a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing. And I am always struck by how generous horses are um, in attempting to understand what we humans are trying to convey to them. And often we're not really doing it very well. We're not doing it very clearly. Right. And so it is absolutely a testament to their generosity. And I want to pick up on another thing that you mentioned there, which I think is really important. An awful lot of times when I talk about the fact that horses don't have prefrontal cortex and don't strategize and evaluate and all of that, people assume that I'm saying that horses are dumb mm. or that they're not as intelligent as humans are. And I think anybody who reads the book knows that that's not at all no. what I'm saying. So as a matter of fact, I think horses are such amazing learners that they're, for many reasons, they are actually far better learners than humans are. Yes. Um, but they're not better at assessing right. or judging. And those things are important and horses don't have that capacity but they have fantastic memories. They have the ability to learn like nobody's business. And they're very, very willing to attempt to cooperate um, under really difficult circumstances. They're so adaptable. And they're also, as you said, generous. And then what I always find so fascinating about horses is that they can have a fairly ingrained behavior. But if you present the new information or the new task or, or a change in that behavior in such a way that the horse can learn it. In other words, that's kind of on us as the teacher to present it and that the horses will learn quite quickly, even if it's something that is complex or uh, goes against some previous training, as long as you're presenting it properly. Whereas people, we have a lot, that whole frontal stuff that gets in our way. We judge ourselves harshly. We have a lot of sort of baggage about past and horses they're really in the moment which is very interesting to me if you are presenting it 
in the appropriate way, a horse will be right there in the moment. They're able to sort of suspend that a little bit, which is pretty fascinating in learning. And they're actually able um, to learn to do things um, that are against their physical nature, against the nature of their brains. Like we were talking a moment ago about shying and about the fact that there are many reasons that horses shy and there are many brain processes. I only mentioned one of them, but there are many brain processes that cause horses to shy. And yet a horse who is trained properly with an understanding of those brain processes is able to learn to delay the, the, the immediate movement that his brain is dictating just long enough to pick up cues from the rider as to, do, do we need to run away here? Do, should I bolt mm-hmm. or not? And that, that's a remarkable thing that a horse is able to learn to do that um, and, and basically go against the hardwiring of his brain. And it, it speaks to that trust, you know, that they put in us and we, in a sense, become their frontal lobe. Yes. It's, it's, it's a very, again, it's based on trust. It's not a, uh, it's not like we mind meld exactly, but we all know if we've been, we've been working with a horse for a long time, there is that sort of meeting of the minds. There becomes that understanding where you can't plan for everything. I was at a clinic one time and these hot air balloons just sort of appeared out of nowhere. And, uh, and the teacher was like, you know, couldn't plan for that in a million years. And uh, all of the horses just basically kind of looked at their riders, like, is this okay? And we were like, pretty sure it's okay. We might dismount now though, just to be extra safe. None of them freaked out. And it was really interesting to me because without that relationship, the most of the, without us being part of the equation, those horses would have bolted. As a herd, as a herd, and it's not that we were all stellar riders or anything like that, but we had everyone happened to have a horse in the arena that day that they'd had a long-standing relationship with, and you really saw it, and it was it was it was really cool. We also had a clinician that required that at all times we have our feet in the stirrups, which is really good too, because everybody <laughs> was prepared in case of a problem. So well, that's true. Um, I mean, we, we, you know, all good riders know that we have to be as safe as we can be, and we do have to be prepared for the unexpected. Yeah, uh, you, you never know. One of those horses very well could have bolted. Right. Um, you know, from from those balloons, that's a dangerous thing. I just wrote a blog post about what two or three days ago. I think it went out on Friday um, on my blog about um, a young horse that I'm training and his very first experience with an umbrella. Oh my goodness. Under saddle. So that's, it's the same kind of thing where, you know, you just, you have to be prepared for the unexpected, but you also try to teach your horse over time that, um, that it's okay to be just a little bit slower in that reaction and wait right. for the human uh, guidance to occur. Yeah, that we're going to help with that. We're going to yeah. we're going to we're going to be a good source to look up first, even if it's yeah. just for a split second. If you could just look yes. at the first, you know, we will do our best to help you. And that kind of leads me into because you're talking about the umbrella, and then just I know there's so many things we could talk about, like for hours and hours. But I wanted to focus on this idea of how horses see. 
Um, I have a podcast study group. It's called Horsewise Scholars. It's a small group. And I asked some of them, hey, would you have particular questions for Dr. Jones? And one of them had the exact same question I did, which is how horses see things is so much different than what we ourselves see. We have this whole thing like, what's wrong with you? Can't you see that it's just a tree? And the horse is like, no, I really can't. Oh, yeah. and, then, and then also the idea of how the right and left side of the brain, the right and left eye, as you said, the pine tree is fine coming around the arena to the right, but coming around to the left, it's a whole other ball game. So in your book, you had a great story about a mare named Hawkeye and how she reacted to, I think it was a sliver of light. Um, and I know I'm kind of commingling some things because that wasn't necessarily about right and left eyes, but can you talk about that a little bit? Because that is such a, I think it's such a huge area that people don't realize. And I certainly, I had some understanding of it, but I had no idea the degree of difference between. Right. right. Um, you know, I think that the fact we were talking earlier about how humans rely so much on vision. I think that's why this question of vision always comes up with people. Um, it's a very common way for the conversation to progress in mm -hmm. the sense that I talk about differences between horse brains and human brains. And one of the first things that people tend to ask me about is, huh, well, what about vision? Right. And I know that that is partly because we rely That's so right. much on vision. We're thinking about that. Um, I do want to go back just really briefly and mention that the reason for the pine tree looking different from the left versus the right has nothing to do with the hemispheres of the brain. So I'm going to be writing on that a, a lot more in the future, um, but that there's a lot of miscommunication, mm. misunderstanding um, about the whole right brain, left brain thing. So I just wanted to mention that, that, that that's not about the, which, which eye the horse is seeing through. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Well, I look forward to reading about that. I was taught, and I'm not sure if it's accurate or not, that there's a little bit bigger space in a horse's brain between the right and left side versus a human's, let's say, so that some of the cross communication isn't as maybe swift, but. That, that's actually, um, it, it, that in, in scientific fact, that's actually the opposite of the oh, truth. Interesting. But it is an extremely common misunderstanding um, that, that that's one reason why I wanna write about this so much because it's one of the things that um, people hear about brain science and not being brain scientists themselves, they assume that, okay, well, you know, that must be the way it is. Um, but in fact, there's a lot more going on. Oh, that's so. really interesting. We'll, we'll look forward to that. And basically but, most people who work with horses, uh, they just accept it. They go, I don't know why this is, but I know that I can't sure. expect him to, if he got, if he, if this isn't scary on the left side, I don't expect when I, let's say it's a training flag. I've introduced the training flag on the left side. He's fine with it. When I go to the right side, I'm not going to assume that it's the same. We're going to start over as if he hasn't seen the flag before. I mean, that's just, that's just functionally what we all do. So well, we'll definitely. It is an appropriate thing to do. I mean, the actual action is the correct action. It's just that the reason for it doesn't have anything to do with the horse's brain hemispheres. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, we will definitely, we'll be, we'll be watching your blog for the future, for the future discussion of that. Thank well, you. Go, well, let me, let me go ahead and talk about vision, which was your, right. your, your actual question. There. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so yeah, horses, 
definitely do not get the same view of the world that we get when we're both standing right in the same place or riding down a, you know, a trail or something. Um, for one thing, it's really important to remember the range of view that a horse gets is about 340 degrees. So the horse can see way out here to the sides, back, not directly behind their heads, but you know, back in that general direction, um, they can see it and they can see the entire world all around the sides. To give you some comparison, the human range of view is about 90. Wow. So big, big difference between what a horse sees and what a human sees. Um, the cells of a horse's eyes and brain detect movements that our brains are not capable of detecting. Mm. So when we say things like, there's nothing there, we don't know. Right, we could be totally the wrong. Much, yeah. The horse has a much better range of view and the horse has the, the all of the neurological machinery in his brain to detect movements and the placement of objects that we can't see at all. Um, horses, on the other hand, have very poor depth perception. Mm -hmm. People often think of well, a horse, you know, depth perception, when you're jumping and all this, the horse can just really tell distances and see all these things. The fact is that human depth perception is 72 times better wow. than equine depth perception. That's because we're predators. Right. We have to have really good depth perception. Prey animals don't have to have that. Um, our human eyes are built to focus on things we hold in our hands. So things that are within two or three feet of our eyes, we are very good at focusing on looking at the details. Horses can't focus on objects that are close up like that. And often we hear people, you know, or we see people hold something up in front of <laughs> face and say, see, you know, this is something new. See this, see this bit that you've never heard about before? Well, if you're holding it within two or three feet of the horse's face, you can't see it. And he'll be much more interested and he'll learn a lot more if you put it beside his nose so that he can smell it. Ah, interesting. Rather than see it because smell is so much more important to the horse. Um, Horses have a much narrower frontal view. So if a horse and a rider are walking, let's say walking down a trail or walking down a line in an arena, um, and they're both looking as straightforward as they possibly can, uh, the horse's view is about half of the width of the human view. So everything is much narrower for the mm -hmm. horse. So the fact that we, for example, we often train our students to not walk a horse through a very narrow passageway, mm -hmm. but try to go through wider, choose mm -hmm. a wider path. That's very important because what's narrow to us is twice as wide as what the horse sees. Right. There. Yeah. So that, um, that there's that also. And then another very important aspect of vision is dark adaptation. So when we go from a very bright, outdoor, sunny area into a very dark place, like a barn or an indoor arena, um, it takes human eyes about 25 minutes to adapt to the darkness in there so that we can see everything well. 
Mm -hmm. um, it takes a horse about 45 minutes to mm -hmm. attend. So when you when when we and our horses are walking from a sunny outdoor area into a dark barn or a dark indoor arena. And we look around as humans and we realize, boy, you know, it seems kind of dark in here. It's sort of hard to see. It's twice that bad for the horse. Yeah. The horse is just in ink blackness. It's like we have plunked him into a bottle of black ink and he's swimming around in there wondering, what is this place? Where am I? Now, he uh, remember, he has the capacity to smell and touch. So if there's a dog in the barn, he can smell that dog. But he has no idea where that dog is. And dogs are predators to prey. Right, right. So there's a lot to think about um, with that sort of thing. You asked me about Hawkeye. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Hawkeye was a well-trained adult show horse. And she was experienced with all sorts of sights and sounds. And her rider, you know, knew that and felt that, okay, you know, I'm not on a green horse. I'm not on a young horse. I'm on an established adult horse that's been around a while. And uh, one day um, we were riding in the indoor arena and Hawkeye was afraid of a tiny little sliver of light that was coming. It was sunlight that was uh. showing the roof of the arena you know there must have been a tiny little gap in the roof right and so it it magnified itself till it was a sliver maybe about that big right on the ground, in the arena on the sand and every time hawkeye was um asked to go in that direction she would suck back and yeah. she would try to you know evade and go off to the side bend her body all around right. as if it was a giant snake that was about to bite her and her rider was very annoyed by this and really felt that Hawkeye was far enough along not to have to do this. So she pushed the horse to move directly toward the sliver of light. Now, this is an extremely standard technique. You go to any kind of competition event, you will see this happen mm -hmm. again and again. And trainers the world over recommend this as the standard training technique to push the horse toward frontally. Get toward over it, just get over it, yeah. Get yeah. over it, yeah. push the horse frontally toward the object. And so here's a great example of where the human brain is dictating that behavior. Um, we do this because we have our eyes set in the front right. of our face. We have fantastic frontal vision. And if we want to see something really clearly, we look right straight at it from the front. So it's our assumption that if a horse is afraid of something, that that, that horse then needs to look at that object and get the clearest possible view. And we then go on, our brains assume for us, that the clearest possible view is going to be right smack in front of the horse's face. Well, obviously horses' eyes are set out here on the sides of their heads. They're not set at the front. So it's much more effective to show a horse something scary from the side mm -hmm. and, and to begin at the distance the horse prefers rather than the distance the human prefers. 
um, and then move gradually closer and teach the horse that there's that they don't need to be afraid of whatever that scary object is. So my book talks in detail about yes. how to go about doing that, you know. And, you, have and a great, you, have a, you have a great diagram in there, there's the swirlogram and everything, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and, and it, it, it works really well. And the other thing, of course, is we have to remind ourselves not to become annoyed at the yeah. horse about this. The horse has absolutely no control over the way her eyes work. Right. She didn't set them up that way. She didn't no. make them that way. No. And so we have to accommodate the equivalent of what we're talking about here in a, in a human way would be if someone demanded you or I to get to know the view of an object that was located out there, out on, I'm trying to do this so you can see. Yes, yeah, but out. right behind us. And, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. and they would say, now, I want you to keep your face and your eyes right here right. and look at that thing back there. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. That's not working. I, I use the example with my students. Um, I'll say, let's say that, are you afraid of a spider? And what I'll do is pretend like I'll hold a rock and say, pretend this is a spider and that you're terrified of it. And I will walk up to them and say, don't move while I put this spider right in your face. And even though you as a human can see it, it's still, if you're afraid of it, it doesn't reassure you to have it thrust into your face or forced. But I'll say, I'll, I'll back off and I'll say, now, if I let you walk around it and kind of circle it and go back and forth so that you can determine that it's not a threat, then you might on your own feel a little more comfortable getting closer. But if I try to force it into your field of vision or just closer than you're comfortable with, it just sets up a scenario where you hate me for one thing, but also where you just want, it makes you more afraid. And of course a horse is a large thousand pound animal. So uh, if, if they really decide that they're not going to that they're just not comfortable and we're, we're trying to urge them forward. We're just teaching them to blow through our aids and, and that we're not, and that we're not supportive. We're not helpful when you're really scared of something as a horse. Right. So, so it ends up destroying the horse's trust Yes. in us too, in the sense that, well, gee, I thought this person was going to help me, but instead she's shoving me right into this spider or whatever it happens. Whatever it is. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's fascinating. So it really gets down to sort of unintentional misunderstandings. Like Hawkeye's rider wasn't trying to make it worse for Hawkeye. She just didn't really understand kind of what was happening and what, what would have really benefited Hawkeye so much more. And when I read your book, there were many examples of that, some of them comical, you know, and some of them, you know, like you, you can really see, okay, just, just a little more information that would have totally been different. And you had you had one particular um, example in the section about how horses are learning machines, where you talked about Marie and her horse Misty, and this idea of um, I guess Marie couldn't get to the barn except on weekends, is that right? And she had limited time in terms of number of days she could be with Misty, and she loved Misty so much. And so, can you tell us what some of those misunderstandings were between Marie and Misty because of that? Sure. Um, Marie and Misty are an example of how we often expect too much of our horses without really thinking um, about what they're 
going through um, as a completely different species. So a lot of people just don't realize how much we ask of a prey animal in one day and um, how difficult our expectations are for them to meet. So I think we kind of underestimate um, how hard the horse is working to do different things. And we often underestimate how hard the horse is working mentally. Like for example, most of us would not go out and gallop a horse physically um, to the point that they were really exhausted over right. a long period of time. We would know better right away than to do that. But we don't think about something like um, the effect on a horse of having to stand still in the cross ties for an hour being groomed or to have to stand still in the cross ties for six or eight hours being body clipped or mm -hmm. and we, we just we we really underestimate that and there's a lot of research that actually has measured different stress variables in the horse that looks at heart rate they look at cortisol levels they look at all kinds of things that have to do with um, stress that indicate that even when horses do not display any mm -hmm. stress, they are still experiencing it and feeling it. And as soon as you look at their uh, body temperatures, their heart rates, the variability in their heart rates, their cortisol levels, all of those kinds of things point to the fact that there's a lot of stress for that. And we need to remember too that horses are made to move. Mm -hmm. They're not made to stand still. And standing still can be a very difficult thing for a horse to do. There are certain breeds, for example, I often work with a lot of thoroughbreds. Off Me, too. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great example of a breed that they have been made. They have yes. been genetically engineered to, to move, move and to move fast. And you can't ask a horse like that to move you know, responsibly, you can't ask a horse like that to just stand still for a very long period of time. So um, a lot of people, I think, pack too much activity into one day with their horses um, to the point that many, you know, many times several hours have gone by. The horse cannot learn well under those circumstances. A horse's body needs food and water more often than mm -hmm. our bodies do. So we're not hungry, but maybe Misty is. Right. And if she's been out there being worked or been in the cross ties for a few hours, she definitely is hungry. Her belly doesn't feel good. Um, she's thirsty. She needs water. She needs to pee every right. now and then. And a lot of us teach our horses not to pee in the cross ties or in the arena or mm -hmm. when we're running them and so we're, we're putting pressure on our horses without really realizing that um, a horse's attention is very limited no matter how well trained she is there's just a physical limit on the amount of attention that our, an equine brain can um, manage and yet I see people quite frequently who are tempted to just continue for the whole day. They think, you know, I've been working all week. I didn't have time to get out here to, to just love on my horse. Right. And so 
they bring the horse out, they groom the horse, tack up, ride in the arena for a while, cool out on a nice open trail someplace just at a walk, bring the horse back, untack the horse, bathe the horse. Maybe the ears are a little furry and need some trimming or the bridle path is too long. Um, I've seen people follow that kind of thing up many times with a fun, fun one hour groundwork. Uh. <laughs> Yeah. We're, you know, we're going to play with barrels and beach balls and do all this kind of stuff because it's so much fun. And then bring the horse back and groom some more. Yeah. And th this creates a lot of problems. There's a big problem for the horse's physical health in doing that kind of thing. Um, but the mental behavior, I think, is what bothers me the most about this. Eventually, even the best, most generous horse is go begin, going to begin to wiggle, going to begin to feel uncomfortable about all this, need to go back to um, their pasture or their stall. And um, eventually, bad behavior occurs. And in my opinion, that bad behavior has been generated by the loving owner who wants to spend all that time with the horse. Um, as soon as the bad behavior begins to occur, the experience becomes a negative mm -hmm. lesson for the horse. So now the horse is there thinking, okay, you know, this is really not something I want to do. Um, you know, this, I'm going to stomp my foot a little harder because I really want this to end. Over, yeah. You know? And so they stop their foot and the handler um, perhaps punishes them for that or maybe just scolds them for that. You're gonna get all kinds of negative behavior. Pretty soon the horse begins pawing, um, all kinds of bad things happen. So at the very least, you get a horse that's uncomfortable physically and can no longer learn the positive lessons that you would like him to learn. And then you probably are going to get some bad behavior occurring. The experience is going to become negative. And what usually happens if it continues beyond that is somebody gets hurt. Right, right. And somebody gets nipped or stepped on or and exactly. it goes, it goes, kicked, right? And it, and it kind of goes back to that misunderstanding that what we perceive to be a great day of companionship like I, like I, as a person would love to be, be able to just be in the barn and have someone groom me all day. It's like going to the spa and doing all these, like we'll walk around and be outside. I've been in an office all week and now I'm going to be outside. But for the horse, that is not pleasant. It's, it's too much. And horses are polite and they're often very stoic and they won't necessarily uh, show you that unless you're really paying attention. But again, I kind of learned the hard way that um, you have to pay attention to what your horse really enjoys. And what your horse really enjoys a lot of times is being left alone after a certain amount of time with a person, not because they hate us. It's just, that's part of, that's part of their own rhythm in a herd. You don't see the herd all hanging out, like constantly together. They, they break off in small groups and come back and some goes off and graze alone. And they, they kind of, they have a different rhythm for what is pleasant for them for companionship and constant one-on-one -on -one 
hyperattention and also like you said standing still for long periods of time i call them land horses are land sharks you know they kind of need to move and they yeah. need to so if we really want to spend a day that's with the horse it's really beneficial to the horse we might just spend an hour or so with them and then the rest of the time maybe just turn them out in their pasture and clean tack and just watch the horse from a distance and enjoy the horse so that the horse wants to see you again next time and it's not personal it's not because you didn't do it right it's just that the horse doesn't want to spend that much time it's not it, it, it's diminishing returns for the horse because of how the horse the horse's needs are are different from ours that's all it is you know i see people a lot who will you know they get upset because their horse doesn't like it when they hug them they hug their horse and the horses are like ah i can't see when you do that or maybe yeah. the horse is just just like a personal space horses have space bubbles too and i had one student i told her you know it's not personal it's just it's just not what he prefers and if you want to have that good relationship with him, you just need to adapt to what works for him. He, he, he can't he can't adapt to you. And that's, you know, it's not personal. So, um, you know, I, that, that's totally true. I um, I encourage people to shoot for daily interactions with their horses of somewhere between one and two hours. Each. Mm -hmm. And I really um, like for it to be almost daily. So five or six days a week, um, uh, there are a number of different, I realize that some people's lives do not allow them to be at the barn five or six days a week. And so there are lots of different suggestions in my book for how people can mm -hmm. overcome this kind of thing and how they can enlist the help of others to to do some of the things that they might otherwise do in a really long Saturday right. session. But, uh, but I think, you know, about two hours from hello to goodbye is a pretty good range of time for a horse. And um, you don't usually run into too many problems of the kind that you and I are talking about with that. Yeah, and you can build the relationship instead of, you know, yeah. make it one where the horse is just sort of tolerating it and no, you want to make the relationship positive so for both yeah as many positive experiences as possible and you want to give him as few negative experiences and, and it goes back to again if if someone reads your book they really get that context of understanding things from the horse's perspective it's not that we don't ever have standards that the horse has to meet for, you know, safety and courtesy. Horses have their responsibilities too, that, that you know, in order, in order to be in our world, but that we, to the extent possible, if we can sort of put the horse's perspective first, again, as the human partner, the partner with the prefrontal co cortex, the frontal lobe, you know, we, we have to kind of be in charge of that, that that is really what builds the partnership and it's and it's not a burden that's what i always will tell people you know it's not a burden it's so interesting when you apply this knowledge and you build your understanding of the horse and the horse builds his understanding and trust in you that's really where it's just it's it's fun and it's not confusing and scary it's just interesting like you get kind of curious it's like okay my horse did that wasn't quite expecting it. I wonder why, like what, what could be the things? Is it something visual that wasn't working for the horse? Was it X, Y, and Z? And you just get into more of this curious CSI mindset rather than, oh, he misbehaved or, you know, whatever it is that's not quite accurate. One of my uh, horsewise scholars asked, like, what are some things that people can do besides read your book, by the way, to get more aware of this perspective to, uh, just build that awareness of seeing the horse's point of view 
Yeah, there are a lot of things that people can do. And these are the kinds of things that people can do after they've put the horse away, but while they still want to spend the rest of their Saturday outdoors at the barn. And so um, one thing that I highly recommend, I think everyone who works with horses should do this, spend the night in the barn once a year. Oh, wow. I do that at least once a year. I used to do it a lot. And I have learned so much about horses by just, I would just take, you know, take a sleeping bag and a long chair of some kind, a plat, you know, I just take an old plastic lunch and set it up there right in the barn aisle and um, yeah, among all of the horses and just spend the night, turn the lights off and spend the night. And you can hear and see these horses interact. Horses don't sleep all night. Horses aren't humans. They don't <laughs> sleep all night. They're awake. They're doing things. They're interacting with each other. And at night, there is no human interference. And oh. if you lie in your sleeping bag, don't use your eyes so much. Use your ears and your nose and your prefrontal cortex to think about what's going on. And you will learn so much from your horse that way. Um, another similar kind of thing that people can do in the daylight, you know, <laughs> not have to be awake half the night. Um, but another really simple thing is if you're going to go out to the barn and work with your horse for a couple hours, but then, you know, you want to be kind to the horse and just put him away and let him be a horse for the rest of the day, then just go off to kind of a distant location um, there somewhere on your ranch and sit down and relax and watch your horse interact with other horses. Watch your horse's activities. Just watch him for three or four hours. What does he do? How does he spend his time? Uh, what interests him? Which things happen around him that he couldn't care less about and which things happen around him that cause him to perk up and, and look at something? You can learn so much about horsemanship and equine behavior just by doing those two things. Oh, that's great. Well, Dr. Jones, I can't thank you enough. This has been a longer podcast than I planned. Um, I had <laughs> promised I promised you more like 30, 40 minutes, and it's been an hour, which does, I have to tell you, tend to happen on the Horsewise podcast because it just seems like these conversations get going, and I'm I, the time just flew by for me. I mean, it was it thank was you. great. Well, it did for me, and I, I think that happens because it's fun for all of us. You know, we, we all have, and I'm sure I include your listeners in this too, I think we all have a passion for our animals, and um, we want not only to make their lives really good, but we also want to learn as much about them as we can, and I think that whole predator-prey brain thing that I talked about at the very beginning, and the fact that this is about the only I believe it is the only um, prey and predator um, communication that really occurs in difficult, complicated maneuvers. Mm -hmm. That we are so lucky to have a window into how the brain of another species works, a species that is so different from our own. And so I think we have to... Um, appreciate that a lot. And I think we all have 
to thank you. We owe a great debt to you for really opening that window so much bigger for the horse world, the horsemanship world out there. Again, your book, I highly recommend it to all my listeners, not only for the technicalities, which are pristine, but for how well presented, how humorous, how uh, just your passion for horses comes through as well. And the stories of the horses that you use as illustrations. And I really think that it adds so much to that understanding, which most of the, again, the gap has been on our side because we just didn't know, but we have the capacity to read your book and understand. So thank you so much for the book and for your time here today. Thank you too. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm, I'm just delighted that you're doing these podcasts and, you know, talk, it's a great opportunity for everybody to get together and talk about these animals that we love so much. Well, you'll have to be prepared because we're going to invite you back after you've written about the hemispheres because okay. you really piqued my curiosity. So be prepared. I'll be stalking okay. your blog as well, my listeners. So thank you again, Dr. Jones. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye-bye. I hope everyone enjoyed this interview with Dr. Jones as much as I did. If you haven't yet read her book, Horse Brain, Human Brain, I highly recommend that you get it. It's available at all the usual booksellers. And I think you'll find it not only really interesting, but also super entertaining. In addition, if you would like to follow Dr. Jones's work more closely, her website is janet-jones.com. At HorseWise, I help people learn the horsemanship tools they need to have a successful partnership with their horse. One of the ways I do that is through a podcast study group called HorseWise Scholars. If you'd like more information on how to join the scholars, please go to horsewisecoach.com scholars. As always, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.